Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. Silver anniversary chapter. Exodus 25. And I'm going to read the entire chapter, 40, nice round number of 40 verses. Um, and I love this chapter. I think when I first got saved, I'd have read this chapter, I'd say, huh? But the longer you're saved, the more you read these things and you start to see the treasures that are bound up in a chapter like the 25th chapter. Starting with verse 1, if your Bibles are open. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. One last thing, on the, in, the, in the previous verses, uh, just to give you contact, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days, okay? All by himself, just him and the Lord. So the Lord is now speaking to Moses up on the mountain, 40 days, no food, God preserving him for 40 days, and the Lord starts to give him the things that we're seeing here at the 24th chapter, just to set the context. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be the length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. And shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and the two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put poles into the rings on the side of the ark, so that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be on, in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony. I love that name for the Ten Commandments. The testimony, which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Hammered work you shall make them at the ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it in one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one another. The face of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. He hasn't received it yet. And there I will meet you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give in the commandment of the children of Israel." You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit shall be its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around it. You shall make for it a frame of handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. Stop here for one second. What if your boss gave you these kind of instructions? Keep going. And you would be like, hold on, I, I, need, I need a recorder. And you shall make it four rings of gold and put the rings in the four corners that are at the legs and the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with, lay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, its bowl for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the showbread on the table before me. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be hammered work, its shafts, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and the flowers shall be of one piece. The six branches shall come, and six branches shall come out of the sides, three branches of the lampstand on one side, three branches of the lampstand on the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch, with ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls like the almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental flower or knob and flower, and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made, 
like almond blossoms, each with ornamental knob and flower. There should be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same. Some of you may know what this actual lampstand looks like. According to the six branches that extend from the lampstand, their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be hammered piece, a hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. They shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with these utensils. And see to it. Look, this is God's final. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain and do not forget a single detail. Before we pray, whatever God gives you, He will help you remember. If God really gave it to you, you know, Randy was talking, how do I remember all that stuff? If the Lord really gives you, you won't forget it. If it's not important, you might forget it. But if you know that it came from the Lord, you're not going to forget. This is really detailed. This is just the beginning of what the Lord gives Moses. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would teach, and Lord, you would convict, and Lord, you would comfort, and Lord, you reveal. For only you, Lord, can show us what your word is intended to do at this very moment. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's word this morning, Gifts for Growth and Glory. Gifts for Growth and Glory. Now, you know the children of Israel are told, or they will be told, that God wants them to bring all the elements, all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, all the linen, all of the beautiful things that will be used to build the tabernacle. And God says, I'm going to have you bring it forth. Not that God needed them to bring it forth, but these gifts for growth and glory. Everything God does is for our growth and his glory. It, now, whether you grow or I grow or not, he still will be glorified. Amen? But everything he does, it sounds better in a title, Growth and Glory. It should be reversed, Glory and Growth, because it's really always his glory first. If he's glorified in me, I will, I will automatically grow. I will become more like the Lord. As long as the Lord is glorified, and he will be glorified regardless, but he wants the children of Israel to glorify him and grow. Um, I was reading in one of the devotionals I have um, just this week, it was talking about the children of Israel. They should have been in the promised land much sooner than they were. Right? But they refused to give God glory and they refused to grow. Now they don't know that yet at this point in this day. They don't know they're going to reject, but at this point in time, you know, they're ready. They're willing. If you're taking notes, I've divided uh, our text this morning into four things. Offerings, mercy, relationships, and light. Offerings, mercy, relationships, and light. No alliteration today. Usually I do. But I'm not going to try and make it fit if it doesn't fit and it doesn't fit. Offerings, mercy, relationships, and light. The tabernacle, let's talk about the tabernacle for a second. Now, we're going to come back to this again in the 37th chapter uh, of Exodus. So there's some things I purposely won't cover today uh, that I save for that because we only have an hour or so today, and we're going to need to revisit almost the same text in the 37th chapter. God's very repetitive, isn't he? Not only want Moses to forget it, but the children of Israel not forget it and let us not forget it. But the tabernacle, essentially it's a portable temple. Right? Uh, a small replica. The tabernacle is a small replica of the very pattern of the temple of God where? In heaven. It's the very throne room of God, replica of it, replica, image of it on earth. Now the instructions for its design, though the instructions for the design of the temple were given to Moses and consequently to the children of Israel, the revelation, or the more full revelation, of the tabernacle, which the tabernacle would later become what? The temple. First when Solomon builds it, then it's rebuilt, right? When Ezra and they, uh, then you have finally 
Herod's temple, but the tabernacle, which would later become the temple, would be, then of course the temple would be the same layout, only larger and permanent building. Well, it was intended to be permanent. Every temple was destroyed, but they were intended to be. Uh, And yet the revelation of the tabernacle would continue the revelation. Remember we talked about Midrash, right? Midrash, the Hebrew, or the Talmud study of Hebrew scripture, that fulfillment just keeps expanding. And so the full revelation of the temple would be further revealed with the writing and revealing of the future scriptures, uh, albeit the other prophets that have yet to be written, when Moses gets this, the New Testament that's yet to be written, right? Jesus, for example, give you a good example of the further revelation of the tabernacle slash temple, because really they're the same, one being portable, one being permanent both replicas of heaven. But Jesus would later declare that he was the temple. That really bothered people in his time, didn't it? He would say, I am the temple. He said in John 2.19, he said, destroy this temple, and three days I'll raise it up. Now, if you were here with us on Wednesday, I showed pictures of just how massive the temple Jesus was talking about. It clearly was one of the seven wonders of the world. The fact that it's not listed that way is only because of... In my mind, it has to be anti-Semitism or something because it is unbelievable what the temple was. So magnificent, people from all over the world wanted to come see it. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm the temple. Greater than that temple. And so he reveals that he would be destroyed but raised back up. A couple of reminders for us to keep in mind as we begin uh, to see the commands and the instructions for the tabernacle and the associated responsibilities for worship. Because the tabernacle would be a place for worship. But, but God, when he gives design and instructions, they're very specific, which I like. Don't you like that God is specific? That we don't have to wonder, I wonder what God really wants us to be focused on. We know exactly what he wants us to be focused on. We may not know what tomorrow holds, but we know what he wants us focused on today. Jesus made that clear. He said, don't even worry too much about tomorrow. But a couple things to keep in mind that we've talked about before, and I just want to remind you, and if you're you're new or uh, haven't been here long, number one, as we discussed in the prophecy series back in November, the principle of duality. Remember duality? Duality is prominent here. Meaning that a single verse or image presents several simultaneous truths. And beyond the ones that we can see, they'll continue to be revealed in eternity. Like, wow, how did I not see that one, right? But duality, that's one verse. Jesus, is a, Jesus himself is a great proof point of duality. How in the world can he be the king, the priest, and the sacrifice all at the same time? But he is. And then and, and, uh, in the Jewish uh, law, you couldn't be the king and the high priest. But Jesus is, right? He's both king and high priest. Oh, and by the way, he's the sacrifice. So he, he uh, himself is this principle of duality. But uh, number two, a number of pictures are fully or more fully understood. A number of pictures are more fully understood or revealed through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament about the tabernacle. In other words, praise God that he's given us the New Testament to illuminate the old. And then third, and this is really important as well, an understanding of the Jewish or Hebraic roots is paramount to seeing the full picture of the Old and New Testaments. In other words... Praise the Lord, we have the Old Testament to more richly understand the New. You see how the two shine light back on each other. And it's been well said that there really is neither Old nor New Testament, but both are eternal. Neither one are old or new. That makes sense? They're not old or new. Uh, They're just eternal. We've We've assigned names to them because one came to us later and one came to us earlier chronologically. But to the point of the Hebrew or Jewish foundations of Scripture, which I think is woefully inadequate in much of the body of Christ, particularly 
uh, in, in uh, evangelical circles. I think a lot of times the Hebrew Jewish foundations uh, are pretty sparse, and that's why I'm so glad God introduced me to Sam Nadler, who I was talking to on the phone this week. I've introduced Sam to other pastors. Uh, he's now been speaking at a lot more Calvary chapels. So he was just down in Williamsburg this past weekend uh, with Tom and their men, but uh, he'll be at our church on June 1st. But I, I'm glad God put him in my path to actually more fully understand these Jewish and Hebraic roots. Uh, but Dallas Theological Seminary said this, of the 404 verses of the Apocalypse, 278 are directly from the Torah, i.e. the Jewish Scriptures. If you don't understand the Jewish foundations, it's hard to understand some things which you're reading in the New Testament. The tabernacle and the worship of God ordained in Mount, at Mount Sinai, and that's where this all takes place, is similar. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9. You've, you've read Hebrews, some of you I'm sure before. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 2 and 11. Listen to what Hebrews says and think about Exodus 25, which we just read. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Do you see how Jesus fulfills the tabernacle? Some of you may have seen the picture that actually Jesus, the tabernacle is shaped like a man, in a sense. It's kind of got a head and a body, and you can see that uh, illustration as well. But the writers of the New Testament, with the possible exception of Luke, and even that's argued, the, all the writers of the New Testament, with the possible exception of Luke, were all Jewish believers in Yeshua, or Jesus. Much of the New Testament assumes an understanding. How many of you have read the New Testament and you now see this? Much of the New Testament assumes an understanding of the Old Testament. Because the writers wrote first to a Jewish audience. Now, Paul's then sent to the Gentiles, and not everything in the New Testament assumes an Old, Old Testament understanding, but quite a bit of it does. Even, and no matter what epistle, you're going to find Old Testament scriptures. Um, which the Old Testament is understood by Jewish people as the Torah, which the Torah is essentially, the truest sense of the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is the truest sense of the Torah, but the Torah can also be understood as inclusive of everything from Genesis through Malachi. But when you talk to a Jewish person, they usually will think Torah, first five books. When you think about the entire what we call Old Testament, they'll think Tanakh, right? The Tanakh, all of the written Hebrew scriptures. That's why when I'm talking to a Jewish person, I don't use the word Old Testament. That has no point of reference to them. You can't have an Old Testament unless there's a New Testament. Since they don't believe in the New Testament, why would I refer to it as Old Testament? They don't refer to it as Old Testament. You either say Tanakh or Torah, Depending on which part of the Old Testament you're talking about, talking to a Jewish person, I want to talk about the book of Isaiah, I say, in the Tanakh, if I say Old Testament, I'm going to lose them. Because that assumes that there's a New Testament. Now, I know there's a New Testament, right? But that doesn't matter. Tanakh, and then the New Testimony. And if you want to refer to the Ten Commandments, you can just say the Testimony. That'll work as well. Well, Let's look at the first four aspects of the tabernacle recorded here in chapter 25. Uh, actually, the first aspect, of, I didn't put in a bullet point, but the first aspect that we won't really talk about is just understood. It's the blueprint that God gives, right? The whole blueprint comes from God. How did God know what the size should be? Determined it before time and space, didn't he? Exactly the dimension. Now, when we get to 37, I'll talk about more of the exact size, and you can kind of understand even more of the framework. On the back table back there, if you weren't here Wednesday night, I've got the Israel pictures and things like that. I've got a cutout of the whole tabernacle. If you want to see how the tabernacle, where the tribes faced it, the east gate, very important, just as it is in Ezekiel 44 with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that uh, on the cutout as well. But let's start first with these offerings. Verse 1 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. It already belongs to the Lord. God needs, be clear about this, God needs nothing from anyone. Isn't that nice to know? God needs nothing from you or me. He doesn't need our hell. He doesn't need our wealth. He doesn't need our time. He doesn't need our intellect. Because really, the scriptures are clear, we have nothing to offer. He doesn't need anything. He already owns everything. Amen? Proverbs 9.10. What do the scriptures say about God owning everything? Listen to these three verses. Proverbs 9.10. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. All right? Number two, Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord. All right, so now we've got everything on the hills taken care of, and the gold and silver, that must mean my car still belongs to me. Oh, that's covered in Deuteronomy 10.14. Indeed, heaven and the highest of heavens belong, Lord, also the earth and all that is in it. Just to make sure that the cattle, the hills, the gold, the silver, uh, that I still, my iPad belongs to me. No, not that either. Everything in the earth belongs to me. Also, the highest of the heavens, the heaven of heavens. There's more, but you get the point. Everything we have, we especially should understand this as believers. Everything we have, everything we have, everything belongs to God. In essence, scratch that, not in essence, in fact, everything we have is temporarily on loan from God. Do you understand that point? Everything you have is temporary on loan from God. You're borrowing it for a period of time, or you're supposed to manage it for a period of time, but he will be soon taking it all back. It's on loan. That's why when we get to heaven, we'll cast our crowns before him. They go right back to him. Everything's on loan. Mine and Montel's older sister, and of course my mom who's here, daughter, even though I was only 12 years old when my oldest sister died of cancer, I still remember verbatim uh, a poem that my dad found on a tombstone from the 1700s. I know, my lovely girl, you were lent to me, not given. Yes, I know, t'was wisdom's part to take you back to heaven. I was 12 years old, and it's still, I still remember it. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me at the age of 12 that everything I had was on loan from God, but it didn't. I didn't give my life to Christ until I was 25. But even at 12, I still remember that poem written on a tombstone from the 1700s that, that my sister was lent, not given, was comforting for my parents. And actually, weirdly enough, it was somewhat comforting for me, even though I didn't really embrace it, fully understand it, nor did it really be something I held on to. But now I, now I get it. How about, how about you? Now I understand that everything is on loan even our children. The children of Israel um, had only received, just recently, they had received a great hoard of treasures. Remember when they left Egypt? All the Egyptians were like, I don't know why I'm supposed to give this to you, but here, my life savings. And they took all this with them. Now you know that the children of Israel were thinking in their mind, God gave us these things, so when we get to Canaan, we can purchase land, we can build, God gave us all this. And now all of a sudden God says, hey, time out. Before you get to Canaan, I want you to give a whole chunk of that over. Huh? To build a tabernacle? You already reside with us. I've seen your fire and cloud. Why would we need to build a tabernacle? You already reside here. And God's like, I know. All that stuff that you got in Egypt, uh, willingly give it over. Or I don't know how much of it, but some of it. Um, there's really no other option to, than to give it willingly. Because your other two options, other than give it willingly, are not give it at all, or give it grudgingly. Which one of those do you think is going to be blessed? You've got three options, God says. You can give it willingly with a big, joyful, thank you, Lord, that what you loaned me, I get to give back to you. Or you can say, since I can't give it willingly, I won't give it. God would say, that's one choice. And then you've got your last one, I'll give it, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Those are your only three choices. Can you think of a fourth? There are no other choices. The point of all giving in Scripture is God says, change your attitude. And then 
proceed forward. God's always about moving forward. Remember when Jesus looked over Jerusalem? He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you, but you are not willing. So since you're not willing, don't worry about it. No, no, he wanted them to become willing. That's what the Lord wants in our life. Uh, can you think of anything at all you could ever give back to the Lord that he hasn't already given you? Can you think of anything? Anything you could ever give God that he didn't give you first? I'll, I think I'll give the Lord 30 minutes in the Word and 15 minutes in prayer. Great, God gave you 45 minutes of time that you are now giving back. Uh, I gave him a song this morning. The worship was wonderful this morning. But he gave me breath to sing. He gave me a voice box that actually works. And even if it didn't work, he still hears the song in the heavens anyway. Praise the Lord, right? Because some people can't make a sound, but they can still make a joyful sound in their spirit. Um, I'll give him my body for a work day. Well, he gave you the muscles to work. He gave you the car to get there. I mean, there's nothing you can't say, well, I'll give God this because I have this, and he doesn't have it, but I'll let him borrow. No, everything comes from him first. And think about it, our giving, remember the children of Israel, they give these gifts, which will be for their own growth, right? Everything they give. God says, I know I'm in your midst. You've seen my miracles. I still demand a tabernacle to be built. And I will dwell among you. And, and the reason why this tabernacle is to be built is because they have to understand some new concepts like the mercy seat. Right? That's going to foreshadow the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, the Lord says, when we give, the tabernacle is going to give glory to God. And you think about it, when we give our lives, our time, our talent, our treasure to the Lord, we are building the kingdom of the Lord. Thy kingdom come, thy will. There's that word will again. Everything we give is an act of the will. Everything. I totally disagree with people say, well, don't give if you can't give with a cheery heart. I can tell you in my entire lifetime, there's many times where my first two steps were not cheerful. But by the third or fourth step, they became cheerful. Now, I won't get credit for steps one and two. That's okay. That's water under the bridge. But by the third or fourth step, I'm happy about it. And I'll never, you know, you guys have heard me tell it too many times. That was my first introduction to uh, working in children's ministry with two-year-olds. First two, maybe four, first month was not happy for me as I held my nose to do it. But the longer I did it, the more it became joyous to me. So I got no credit for the first month. God says that was not, yeah, it was begrudging. You didn't do it with a good heart. But by the time I started to walk in it, I then said, Lord, this actually is a blessing. And I'd give you another month with these two-year-olds. And it became joyous. That's been my experience. You may see something. I, in my, I don't actually know of anything in the walk of Christ that doesn't start off first with a little bit of fear, a little bit of trepidation. Where would be faith if you didn't have that? Everything's a step of faith. Everything is first, Lord, I don't know, you know, I'm going to need this in Canaan. God's like, but you will be part of building the Ark of the Covenant. I know, but can't someone else do it? God's like, no, I chose you. And that's a blessing, isn't it? The Lord says, give willing to me of your time. Willingly, change your heart. Give willingly to me your time your talent, your treasure, and, and I'll show you my tabernacle come down out of heaven. That's really what God's going to show them. Not just the tabernacle they could see. God says, I'm going to tabernacle with you. Better than that, God will show us the precise reason we were ever created in the first place, which is to what? To be worshipers. To be worshipers. We were created to worship, to serve Him, to observe His glory, to reflect His glory. That's why I, the theme for our church this year that the Lord gave my heart is joy. Now, you don't have to walk in joy, but I'm choosing to all year. If you catch me not walking in joy, I'm sure you can spot it at times, but you know, I'll have to immediately say, Lord, you know, I got off course there. But I want to reflect His joy. I know the world is coming to an end, but that doesn't for me, that means we'll be home with the Lord soon. 
So that's pretty joyous to me. We long for that, so we want to reflect his glory. Israel's role as a nation and the tabernacle's role was to reflect the same glory as prophesied of Jesus. Think about it. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. See it for yourself. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Once again, Jesus is both tabernacle and temple. He's God with us. He is the tabernacle. Verse 8 is pointing to Messiah. Let's look at the mercy. Mercy. Verse 10, you shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. And of course, I don't need to read the rest. They're going to overlay it with gold. Uh, we were over in Israel, it was interesting to see. Uh, you guys have probably seen acacia trees many times. Maybe you didn't know they were acacia trees. If you ever watched the safari shows in Africa, you know those cool green trees, they're kind of shaped, yay, you know, the giraffes eat on them. Those are acacia trees, and they're all over uh, the lower part of Israel. They're down into the Arabian Peninsula, which were, was Midian, where Jethro, and of course Mount Sinai is. Uh, so these acacia trees, they would take these acacia trees and it's a beautiful wood, but they would cut them and, uh, and then shape them into what would be the box of the ark, and it had to be overlaid with gold, but the lid would be pure gold. And according to the Scriptures, the lid, uh, according to God's perfect pattern, again, Moses, I believe, not only hears, but I believe God shows him these patterns up there on the mountain. What about you? I think God literally shows him what these things look like. He has a visual and an auditory understanding. He can go back, no, 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 that's not, let me draw it on the ground. <laughs> you got it all wrong. This is what it looks like. I saw it. This is, I saw the throne room of God, and this is what it, this is the shape and everything else. The dimensions are one thing, but he gives the shape of it all, and he understands it, and the lid had to be made of pure gold with two cherubims with their wings covering their faces and their wings touching, right? Over top of the ark, the ark of the box, Again, the box part was acacia wood, but the lid was pure gold. No wood at all. On the seat, the mercy seat was pure gold. The primary attribute of God, when we look at that picture of the angels, the two cherubim, just as in heaven, with their wings outstretched, covering their eyes, covering the actual altar itself, pure gold, not a trace of impurity, the purest, most element or the, the, the greatest attribute of God is very clear, and it is called exactly where this place would go, the Holy of Holies. God's greatest attribute is not love. It's holiness. From His holiness comes love. From His holiness comes mercy. From His holiness comes grace. From His holiness comes truth. But God, what do the angels say nonstop? Not love, love, love. Holy, holy, holy. They never say love, love, love. They never say grace, grace, grace. They never say truth, truth. They say holy, holy, holy. It's called the holy of holies, not the grace of grace, not the mercy of mercies. It's called the holy of holies. This is the nature of God. It's holiness. And I know many, many people in the church don't want to hear that. But that's the nature of God, is holiness. He calls us to be a holy, set-apart people, purified by the power of His Holy Spirit. The holiness is then illustrated inside the testimony with the testimony, the Ten Commandments. And that would be the only manuscript ever given to man written by the very finger of God. Ten Commandments, unalterable, non-negotiable, and to which all people will be judged against them if they go to the great white throne judgment. Holy. Ten Commandments. Inside would also later be a jar of manna showing that God is the sustainer of life. He's the sustainer of life. Manna came from God. Bread come down to heaven. Also a picture of Jesus himself. And then the last thing in there uh, would be Aaron's rod, the sign of the priesthood. Who is the priest? Who's the high priest? Jesus himself. He's pure. He has the law in one hand and he has the manna which is his own grace, which is his own life, which is his own provision. And these are the articles that would go inside. A, little, a very little box. 
It's hard, it's hard to believe that when you look at the universe, you've, you've seen how massive the universe is. And then God will come and abide in a box about yay big on top of it. Because God is neither small nor big. He's everywhere. Amen? And he, would, he wouldn't just be there. He would be everywhere also there. But there is where he would meet at the mercy seat. And this is where it's so important because it would be at the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies where mercy would be found. You can look in Leviticus 16. Blood would have to be put there. One day a year, the high priest, and the high priest only, and he better go in with no unconfessed sin, he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would pray for atonement for his own sins and the children of Israel one day which now is celebrated as Yom Kippur, but it was the Day of Atonement that he would go in. This, we'll get into this later. But atonement in Hebrew means kafar. What does kafar mean? It means to cover, to purge, to make reconciliation, to cover with pitch, similar to the pitch that was put on the ark. Right? That pitch was necessary for uh, salvation. In the New Testament, it's used in Romans 5.11. The Greek word is uh, let me see if I can get this right again. Katalaji. Katalaji. It's a Greek word. It means to adjust a difference, reconciliation, or a restoration of favor. Would you agree with me? Without mercy, we are not restored to favor. Very important that we're covered by the pitch of the blood and restored to favor. An adjustment on our behalf must be made. Amen? Because we've got a big sin debt we can't get out of. But we'll come to the mercy seat and God would tell Moses, more than anything else, you need to understand that inside the holy holies, I'm holy, but because I'm holy, I offer mercy of my own free will. The same way I'm asking of a free will offering, I freely give salvation and the atoning of the blood. The dictionary describes atonement as this, satisfaction or reparation, uh, reparation of a wrong, the doctrine concerning the reconciliation of God and humankind, especially accomplished with the life, suffering, and death of Jesus Christ. When you look at the syllabic breakdown of the English word atonement, what are the three syllables? At one meant. At one meant. At one with God. Who doesn't want to be at one with the Lord? Well, a lot of people don't. But if God could pull back the curtains of heaven and say, look at this. Why would you not want to be at one with me? Again, uh, hard for us to believe, but even Satan was in the presence of God and didn't want to be at one with the Lord. So we do understand that the heart is rebellious, but God's desire is that we'd be at one with him, that we'd receive atonement, that we'd receive his mercy, that we'd come into, and praise the Lord, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil of the Holy of Holies? Torn asunder. Well, we were over in Israel, and I, and I was telling you guys Wednesday night, I showed the picture of the only uncovered part of what is today the Temple Mount, what was uh, all the way back to Abraham, it was called Mount Moriah. Those of you who are here Wednesday night, you actually saw that circle of uncovered mountaintop which no one knows why it's still uncovered. It's really mysterious. Was it uncovered in Solomon's temple? Was it also uncovered in, uh, in, the, sec in the second rebuilding of the temple? Was it uncovered in Herod's temple? Because it's untouched. There's no plaster on it. There's no laid stone on it. And many rabbis believe it was where the Holy of Holies was, which was the very same place that Isaac was laid down on Mount Moriah, typifying who would die there. Jesus. Of course, Jesus didn't actually die on Mount Moriah. He died at Golgotha, which was north of the city gate outside Damascus. But that's where the temple would be built. God knew where the temple... This tabernacle, which would be exact replica as far as the, the way it was laid out, would be relayed out by Solomon on the temple mount on Mount Moriah. And even if that's not the exact same spot, it's still the place where the picture of death, of resurrection of Isaac raised back up, was on that same mountain. And then, of course, the layout of the temple would be that same place. You know, God is very specific, isn't he? Knobs, flowers, hooks. Pole goes and hook. Why would that important? You couldn't touch it. No man can look upon God and live, and no one could touch the Ark of the Covenant. This will later happen, and what happens when people touch the Ark of the Covenant? Instantly die. His greatest attribute, holy, but out of his holiness, he extends mercy. 
He wants you to know I'm a holy God, I'm a just God, and because I am, you can come to me, but on one term, the blood. Don't come to me with, I gave more than anyone else. Don't come to me with, I'm really religious. Don't come to me like Nicodemus and tell me, hey, I'm already a a priest. Come to me and say, I'm a beggar. Mercy, Yom Kippur, atonement. Let's look at the relationship. Look at the relationship. The table of showbread. Moving right along here. The table of showbread, also made of acacia wood, also overlaid with pure gold. Verse 30, and you shall always set the showbread on the table before me. The table of showbread will never not be in front of the Lord. Set it before me always. These small little furniture elements were imperative to God illustrating his pattern of glory. According to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, you can write these down, Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, the showbread was made of fine flour and 12 cakes, uh, one for each of the 12 tribes. So each, each cake represented one of the 12 tribes. It would set on a table, and guess what they'd sprinkle on it? Frankincense. Frankincense. You can actually eat frankincense. I brush my teeth with a toothpaste that has frankincense in it. If you're jealous, I'll tell you what brand it is later, you know, if you want to know. <laughs> it kind of tastes good, but I'm not sure if it's the frankincense or the mint or whatever. But anyway, I've digressed. But once a week, the bread was replaced. Once a week, the bread was replaced, and only the priest could eat the bread. And this is great, because later on, who becomes priest? We're all, kings, we're all made kings and priests. We can eat of the bread. Uh, this is a foreshadowing because at this time, only the Levite priest could eat of the bread. Not just the high priest, other priests too, but there was 12 loaves laid on the table of showbread and they had to sprinkle frankincense. Why frankincense? I think there's a multifaceted view of relationship though when you look at the showbread. The 12 loaves would be set before the Lord and they're sprinkled with frankincense. Jesus would later be sprinkled with frankincense. He would be presented as a child and it would be sprinkled upon him where? At his death. Even there is the picture of us being crucified with Christ. Even there. The 12 tribes. God, see, Christianity is not a Gentile religion. It was set first as for the Jews. To the Israelite. To the Hebrew nation first. They were to exemplify the coming Messiah. They were to be sprinkled with frankincense as the Messiah would. As even the Talmud, uh, the rabbinical writings talk about that there would be a suffering Messiah and a royal Messiah. And of course, we know that they are one Messiah. Both, pro- both priest or both a suffering lamb, the lamb of God, and also king of kings and lord of lords. But here the showbread sprinkled with frankincense, uh, uh, you know, just kind of that picture of likeness with Christ. And I would say, too, the longer we sit before the Lord, we come, become more like Jesus, too, don't we? We have his aroma. We have his aroma. You know? I had a guy, and I, I, I hesitate to say this, but it's just, it was too funny. I had a guy recently say to me, why are you always so happy? I said, why wouldn't I be? The Lord Jesus Christ. We, we of all people should be the most full of the aroma of Christ. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've scratched the surface of what it means to smell like Jesus. How about you? Most of the time, I smell like burnt toast, <laughs> not frankincense. This bread wouldn't be burnt. The loaves represent the 12 tribes. Also, think about the loaves. The priests were allowed to eat the loaves, Right? So the loaves would actually be meeting the needs of others. Is your, is your life meeting the needs of other people? Just as we're to do in relationships. You can't do that without relationships. You have to build relationships with people to even know what their needs are. That's why I love fellowship. Last night a bunch of us for fellowship, and I know that, you know, that we, as we gather to fellowship, we're going to have a, uh, a fellowship at the Ernest Home, I think, in March. And that's where you get to know people outside of just sitting behind their head which is important enough, but the back of your head doesn't tell me a lot. Unless you're balding or something like that. But uh, 
Also, the relationship every week, the bread had to be removed and replaced with fresh bread. Once a week, the bread had to be replaced with fresh bread. Can't get stale. Relationship with Jesus is not allowed to get stale. Has to stay fresh. Has to be regularly refreshed. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm refreshed every Sunday I come here. Now, I'm also refreshed as I spend time with the Lord Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But, all, but there's a different refreshing as coming together other believers than there is. They're all sweet, and they're all purposeful, and they're all needed. But would you agree with me that different type settings offer different refreshings? I think they do. It's a totally different refreshing when I fellowship than when I worship with you, than when I pray with you, than when I just spend time with the Lord all by myself with the Lord. The, They're all important. You can't have one without the other. Right? That'd be like saying, well, I'm going to eat, but I'm not going to drink. Yeah, they're both important. Both equally important. The relationship can't get stale. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. One day a week, they came to break bread. Clearly, this picture type, the old, uh, the Tanakh, and the New Testament pointing back to each other. Right? Hebrews 10.25, we see that we're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Some people see no value in refreshing relationships. God says, not my people. They refresh them. And, and Ivy, he even gave a full day. One of the things that was really fascinating about being in Israel, of many things, but I'm going to keep, you're going to hear me for years bring up fascinating things because there was so much. That nation, even though they do not yet nationally recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, the impact of them as a nation recognizing the Sabbath is profound. They have one day still that the whole nation doesn't work. And you can see the impact on people as they have a slower cadence of life. They don't seem to run around like crazy. They don't seem to like, like, like left their head back at the house. I, I don't know. My wife sensed it too. I, I, I would say Russ probably would see the same thing. It was a slower cadence because not only is the Sabbath day full of rest, but they actually start preparing for the Sabbath before the Sabbath. Right? And so it seems like things slow down. Now, ultimately, the full fulfillment of that rest will be when they rest in Jesus. But there's a partial blessing taking place right now, and I see it all over the land. Just observing the Sabbath. And what do they do with the Sabbath over there? It's amazing. They get together. They don't just observe it. Even the sec- we found even the secular, uh, whether you saw, I think, the secular ones were at least Harley riding together. Or at least having a picnic at Mount Arbel, which was not uh, the, uh, those in the synagogue, but families and meals. And, and then it has a spillover effect where the families seem to eat dinner together every night. Do you see, as I talked about, F.B. Meyer talks about big changes hinge on little things. When you start to say, Lord, these little things, the little knobs, the little gold rings matter, God will give massive return on your obedience. Amen? The little things matter. They matter immensely. There where the big victories come. There where the big blessings are poured out. In this relationship, God says, look, Give me the little loaves, like Jesus had with the boys' loaves, and I'll do great things. Give me the little, have relationship with me. Stay, oh, I, you know, I, I can't get, start 15 minutes a day with me. Never, if you're, unless you're on vacation sick or you're, uh, you know, tied up with a job that you can't get out of, come fellowship every Sunday. If you can come Wednesday, that's fine too. I was listening to the revivals, the Welsh revivals. Uh, you wouldn't want to hear how many times they got together. They were so in love with the Lord, they couldn't stop getting together. It's, it's, it's like listening to Acts chapter 2. And then lastly, you see the aspect here, when they would eat of the showbread, who were they really eating and communing with? The Lord himself. When the priests would eat there, they said the bread was set before who? The bread was set before me, God. So when they would eat the bread, they're actually having a meal. And doesn't Jesus want us to dine with him? That his word is like food? Better than necessary food? Better than honey? Sweeter than honey? All of these things, it's sustenance from the Lord. And by the way, 
Lastly, that bread, which would actually come into the priest's body, it meets needs. You know, God knows you have needs. Everyone here has some need today that you know that other people don't know you have. But God knows. The fa- Matthew 6, 8, the Father knows you have need. There is no self-sustaining person. Some of the people that, that act so self-sustaining, they're in knots, right? They're not at rest. God knows you have need. The Lord says, look, stay with me a while. I'll meet your needs. The the ironic thing here, or we see the paradox, is that the bread both exemplifies us and the bread is also Jesus. But that's not hard to understand when you realize that Jesus would later say, I and you and you and me. Right? That we become part of his body, so the very bread that represents us in the show, bread also represents him, and that's why when Christian hurts Christian, you're chopping off the very arm of Christ. Right? God says, relationship, I don't hurt me, you don't hurt me. We love me. (laughs) Me is in capital M-E, the Lord Jesus Christ. So important that God's showing this relationship here, and then the last thing we look at, the light coming to a close here, light. The golden lampstand. Is it not, in one hand, it's kind of curious, but also beautiful, the ornamentation of this lamp? The buds. And, and each knob or bud or bowl, so it's actually a little bowl with a bud and a flower blooming, an almond blossom. If you were here on Wednesday, I showed an entire blooming almond orchard in Israel. Beautiful. The flowers, five petals on every flower. They're gorgeous. They're a pinkish white. But, of course, these wouldn't be colored. They'd be the gold. There would be no color on it, but it would be pure gold. But it would be shaped like the almond blossom with these little tiny bowls that they would sit in a bud above the bowl and then the flower above the bud. And then they were at these joints. So that's what the lamp looked like back there. See that menorah? Up there in the corner. I meant to bring it up here. I totally forgot. But uh, that's it. If you've seen a menorah, this is it. The golden lampstand is what, in Hebrew, is the menorah. The center shaft, the centerpiece, with the three branches coming out on each side. So you have seven candles or seven little lamps that would be at the top of it. And notice the numerical construction. Seven. God created the earth in seven days. Right? The number of perfection. Seven days in a week. Seventh Day is the Sabbath rest unto the Lord. And of course, he is the seventh in the center there. Six on each side, the number of man. Six days with the earth created. You see the numerical uh, understanding of the menorah. And I'm sure there's more to it than that. But uh, Jesus said, when you think about that center branch of the menorah, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, you know, I don't know, but, but the, the Hebrew hearers would have thought of the menorah. When he talks about that, you might think of a grapevine or a tree, but they, their whole life, have seen the center branch with the branches. Jesus says, I'm the center branch. You guys are the outline branches coming into me, the branch. Zechariah 4 2 says, I am looking. I love this verse. I am looking. And there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the, sta- on, and on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Zacharias, I'm looking and I see a lamp. It's giving off light. It's got seven lamps, the seven spirits of God. And I see this beautiful lamp. And God is wanting the whole world to see the light of the world. See, the menorah is also a picture of Jesus. In Revelation, he stands among the lampstands, doesn't he? There he is, walking among the lampstands. Each church has a menorah. There in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. I love, the more I research this, you know, the menorah is certainly not exclusively a Jewish thing uh, because it's so prominent throughout the scriptures, it's an eternal thing. It's just uh, most Christians don't understand that when Jesus is in the lampstands, that's what he's surrounded by, the menorah. Understand that this lampstand, this menorah is different, that this will be the tabernacle or temple menorah, it's different than the Hanukkah menorah. If you're Jewish, you already know this, but for those of you that don't, the Hanukkah menorah 
or lampstand has nine candles, not seven. Uh, the Hanukkah menorah was created to memorialize a momentous national deliverance from the evil and the violent and the blasphemous Antiochus Epiphanes, right? They found a little jar of oil. It was only supposed to last a day. It lasted for eight full days. And of course, then they have the eight, and then the, the ninth candle represents the, the jar of oil itself. So you have, and then that is celebrated. It's an annual festival. Uh, it's one of the many traditional festivals of Jewish or Judaism. Uh, this festival is also known as the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. Uh, there's a biblical reference to it, but it's not in the Tanakh. It's in the New Testament because it's in John 10, 22, and Jesus actually observes the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. Why wouldn't he? Because it represented the temple being re-consecrated to God. So even though it's not in the Tanakh or the Old Testament for us, it still was, even Jesus considered it holy because the temple was re-consecrated. And who is the temple actually? Himself. So you have uh, Hanukkah is, is also a, a beautiful menorah, but it's not this menorah. Hanukkah, of course, observed on the 25th day of Kislev according to the Hebrew calendar, which is uh, either in November or December, depending on the year. And uh, although while Hanukkah is not one of the sevenly divinely appointed feasts in Scripture, uh, it, is hor uh, it is historically significant, and it's also spiritually significant, as I mentioned, because of the rededication of the ancient temple back to God, because God always wants the temple to be consecrated to him. And when the abomination of desolation was set up in there, as it will with the Antichrist, that infuriates the Lord. It had to be cleansed. It had to be purified. So that was important. But the Hanukkah menorah, just so you're not confused, if you see a nine-candle menorah, that's not the temple lampstand. If you see seven, that is the temple lampstand. And uh, the Hanukkah menorah, uh, the temple lampstand, remember the temple lampstand represents the precise pattern in heaven. This is what Moses was given. Now we'll have look at more differences in them uh, when we get to Exodus chapter 37. But in coming to a close, notice again the ornamental construction of this. The, uh, the little bowls. Bowls, the little branches, the almond flowers. Hey, you know, sometimes we'll get to heaven, I'm like, God, why'd you choose almond flowers? There's a lot of cool flowers. What about orange blossoms, right? What about date palms? Although palms will show up in, in elements of the temple too, so you actually, but God has a precise direction for everything. This is the way I want it. Now, of course, when we look at the ornamental a flower blooming is, is life. There's some life there. The candles are burning. There's some light, right? We see the branches, growth, right? We see these bowls ready to be filled. God wants to give us light. He wants to give us life. He wants to give us growth. He wants to, light is actually a picture of truth, right? Illuminating a dark place. Remember Paul, one of my favorite verse in Acts chapter 26, he would be called to bring people out of darkness into the light, right? And Jesus is the light. He's the lampstand. He's the menorah. But he's there to give us wisdom, direction, guidance, truth, and growth, that we would bloom like those almond uh, blossoms, right? Many people aren't blooming. It makes me really sad when I see Christians who have all, and of course Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and he said, you have all of the writings of the prophets. Not only the writings of the prophets, but the prophets spoke to you verbally, and yet you still languish like a dying vine, right? And a lot of Christians are like that. They have all, they have all the understanding. They've been given eternal life, and yet they live in misery. And God's like, I want you to be raised up, be a light on a hill, amen? The very same thing that the menorah light couldn't go out, your light shouldn't go out, right? that you would be a light. And Jesus said, no one puts a book, no one covers or puts a bushel over a light. You let that light shine. It was supposed to shine in the tabernacle. And you see these beautiful elements uh, on the menorah. Beautiful. We'll get to the 37th chapter. We'll see the, the artisan who does the work and those kind of things. But uh, I know that uh, this week, the ladies were even, I think, at the ladies' prayer, 
they had read a little bit of John Corson's praying through the tabernacle, which is also a beautiful picture where you actually see the gates of praise and you go through. We'll get more into the tabernacle in the next couple of weeks. Matter of fact, next week is officially the actual tabernacle construction. These are the furniture elements of it. But do you see the, the clear picture of Jesus calling us to give him glory and us to grow? Amen? Very clear picture to me. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you again for this time and your word this morning. Lord, we ask that, uh, Lord, our lives would be a sweet aroma to you, that we'd be like the bread with the frankincense set before you, Lord, that we would be also humbled by the mercy seat. Yes, you're holy, but we thank you that because of your great love that you give us the precious blood of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you are our light. And you lead us and you grow us and you help us to blossom and bloom in spite of all the fiery darts that would come against us and even, Lord, the failing and dying of our own bodies. Lord, we can still be menorahs in your presence, Lord, as you continue to trim and to, uh, and Lord, just to keep us aflame by the oil of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, for this time here this morning. May your name be glorified. Amen.